I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And when you hear this quoted description, you'll assume the subject is Donald Trump. But instead of a unique orange hue and bizarre haircut, this self-obsessed, proven to be very dangerous leader of a militarily reliant world power sported a heavily waxed, upturned mustache. Who is talking about? Well, start your guessing. Historian Thomas Nipperty described our subject as superficial, hasty, restless, unable to relax, without any deeper level of seriousness, without any desire for hard work or drive to see things through to the end, without any sense of sobriety for balance or boundaries, or even for reality and real problems, uncontrollable and scarcely capable of learning from experience, desperate for applause and success. As one of his military underlings said, he wanted every day to be his birthday, end of quote. Or try these words from a worried top aide to a personal friend describing his boss, the leader of a powerful nation again, not Donald Trump. Quote, he asserted his authority unpredictably as if to prove he was still in charge, staging rogue interventions into his own advisor's policy and sacking ministers without warning. You cannot have the faintest idea what what I have prevented, this man said, and how much of my time I must devote to restoring order where all, our all-highest master created chaos. End of quote. Well, here's a hint. He was Queen Victoria's first grandchild. His cousins were King George of Britain and Nicholas uh, Russia's last Tsar. Give up? Well, we're talking about Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II, who reigned from 1888 until the disastrous end of the Great War uh, in 1918, which brought human, economic, and political ruin to his country. And it must be said that though the judgment of the victors of the First World War officially fixed the blame for starting that war on Germany, the truth is Kaiser Wilhelm sort of stumbled into it. But that's another discussion. The similarities between Kaiser Wilhelm and Donald Trump are legion and are truly shocking. I doubt that our guest today, Miranda Carter, intended to become an expert on these two bizarre figures, but by having a written, written a book about Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm and his cousins, published back in 2010, she became a unique source of insight. More recently, she wrote an essay asking, what happens when a bad-tempered, distractible doofus runs an empire? Well, that's the discussion today. Miranda Carter is the author of George, Nicholas, and Wilhelm, a biography of three royal cousins, George V of Great Britain, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, and Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. And we reach her in London. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, she talks about their relationships 
those cousins during the lead up to World War One. She's also author of a biography of the British spy Anthony Blunt, which was chosen by the New York Times as one of the seven best books of 2002 and of a series of historical thrillers set in India and Britain in the 1840s, the first of which, The Strangler Vine, was shortlisted for Mystery Writers of America's Best Novel Award. She lives in London, England, where we reach her today, and she is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. I'm in no royal society. Well, that's quite a, quite a title for your essay, Miranda. What happens <laughs> when a bad-tempered, distractible doofus runs an empire? Having spent a great deal of time with your early 20th century fellow, the Kaiser, I can't imagine what it felt like for you to witness the accession to the White House of Donald Trump, a character very few people knew was so similar to your main character, Wilhelm. For example, you write... Quote, since Donald Trump started campaigning for president, he has consistently and forcefully reminded me of the Kaiser, even down to his little white hands. Millions around the world were deeply upset at the results of the election of November 2016. With your intimate knowledge of Trump's century before brother from another mother, please share with us your memories of how you felt that amazing night. Well, um, well, as for my thoughts, um, I think, uh, you know, when Trump won, there had been some hints that it might happen, even though it was a surprise. Obviously, in England, in Britain, we'd had the Brexit vote several months before, which was uh, a great upsurge of sort of popular feeling and anger and resentment towards political elites. So there was a hint that, you know, the weather might be blowing in that direction. Um, And the other thing I suppose I should say was, although I I noticed these similarities with the kind of crazy tweets to start off with, it wasn't really until uh, Trump took office that the similarities really started, you know, coming thick and fast. Because, of course, like lots of people, you know, when he won the election, I kept hoping, well, maybe he'll be more presidential than he has been while he's been campaigning. You know, you never know. Hold your your breath and maybe it won't turn out to be so bad. Yeah, well. Um, But, yes, it was a bit of a shocker. And it was then... Probably about six weeks into his, you know, once he took office in, in at the end of January, and then, you know, the tweets and the rumblings and the complaints and the Bannon comments and, you know, drama every day. And I started thinking, my goodness, this is really sort of insistent, this this comparison, this, this uh, similarity. And then it was when the Fire and Fury book came out, um, it's in 2018 that I thought, oh my goodness, I've really got to write something about this. Huh. Interesting. Well, as you write, Trump's tweets were what first caught my attention. As a scholar of Wilhelm II, tell us about this, please. Uh, well, um, one of the, the sort of first main comparison I, I felt uh, between Wilhelm and, and Trump was, as we know, you know, Trump loves to tweet and we also learned fairly early on that his staff really wished he, he wouldn't. Well, Wilhelm loved to make speeches. Uh, he often spent a lot of his year uh, marching around Germany um, on a sort of continuous military parade giving speeches. It was the thing he really loved doing most in the world. Um, but the problem was, although the, the speeches were scripted, he'd get very, very overexcited when he was in front of an audience and very quickly go off piece. And in these speeches, he'd sort of suddenly come out with something incredibly aggressive and shocking and frightening. And although his ministers would do their best to 
try and suppress the story, try and keep it out of the German newspapers. This is the beginning of the mass media um, all over the world. And so his speeches and his sayings would be printed in the European press. And so they, they were soon known by everybody. So he'd say things like, you know, um, as if sort of nobody else could hear when he gave the speeches. He'd suddenly turn around and say, oh, Britain, you know, it needs to be knocked off his perch. You know, the Germany it should, be, it should be top of the tree. Or, you know, France, I'll be invading it in about two minutes. Or, um, you know, Germany was a country which had political parties and a, mm. and a political assembly, the Reichstag. And he was forever saying things like, you know, the, 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 um, the left-wing party, the Socialist Party, he would say that they were a gang of traitors and they deserved to be shot. So all these sorts of things, uh, as you can imagine, made people think both that he was, you know, quite off kilter and out of control and also was quite frightening. You know, and to have one leader like that, whoa, is pretty shocking and upsetting, but two? Yikes! <laughs> yes, absolutely. looks like, uh, uh, what's the word? It looks like, um, um, uh, oh, I can't remember the saying, but, you know, um, you know not, we're not taking enough care, obviously. Oh, really? Well, you write that one of the few things that Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, had a talent for was causing outrage. He had a particular specialty for insulting other heads of state. These were personal and rather childish. Please tell us about some examples of that behavior by Wilhelm. Well, Wilhelm would often, as you say, insult other heads of state. He seemed to love belittling his peers, in fact. And I think this was either because he felt that they were less important than him, so he could, or often because he was angry or envious of them. So, for example, um, the uh, Ferdinand, Prince of Bulgaria, who was a leader who he definitely thought was slightly beneath him, but nevertheless rather irritating, he used to call him Ferdinand Nazo behind his back because Ferdinand had a rather large beaky nose. And he also put it about that Ferdinand was um, an androgene, you know, a hermaphrodite. Um, and then when uh, Ferdinand came to Germany on a visit in 1908, uh, Wilhelm smacked him on the bottom in public. And this was really not something he did in the very formal world of 1908 Europe. Oh, really? Um, and then he refused to apologize, which was absolutely characteristic. So Ferdinand had his revenge. Uh, he had been going to give a massive arms contract to uh, Germany, and instead he gave it to France. So this was the sort of trouble that Wilhelm was causing all the time. Oh, my. You know, I'm laughing, but it's it's terrible. I mean, it's so... I know. Well, the thing about, about Wilhelm is that he is a sort of great kind of comic, tragic figure. And, you know, if you're not actually having to live in, within, you know, the consequences of what he's doing, it's just, you know, ridiculous. It's like a scream. But, of course, you know, when you're too close to the consequences, it all starts looking rather scary, like yes. Trump. Yes, it's not so funny anymore. Now, our no. our Democratic nominee in 2016 had no message. Uh, maybe it was, it's my turn. I don't know. Trump's message was very simple, and it worked. Make America great again. This reminded you of Wilhelm's message upon becoming Kaiser at age 29 in 1888. Do tell. Yes. Um, well, actually, the thing about Wilhelm is he didn't really go into his... his, his uh, his reign with with any slogans or many ideas at, idea, at all, except that he did have this idea that somehow he was going to make Germany 
the most important and powerful country uh, in Europe, if not the world. And in fact, later, this was this was summed up by one of his ministers as getting Germany its deserved place in the sun. And, you know, Germany's place in the sun became a kind of slogan like Make America Great Again. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, he had no idea how to do it. It was a very superficial um, idea. It was just, you know, he was going to be sort of thrillingly good at being Kaiser, but he wasn't really sure how he was going to do that. And the main thing he really was excited about was riding around on a horse in a military uniform. He was absolutely obsessed with um you know, gaining attention and being the sort of centre of attention and being seen as tough and macho. Um, so, you know, walking through a town on his horse in a shiny uniform, you know, was for him basically, you know, being being emperor. Um, so it was a very sort of superficial idea, but it was a very sort of gripping idea, the, the idea that Germany should have its place sure. in the sun, because at this point, Germany was a very new country. And yes, also, yes. it was very economically successful. It, it was a great sort of engineering, steel-producing, yes. um, growing economy, and people were getting richer and richer in Germany. And they felt that they deserved, well, not everybody, obviously, but there was a sort of sizable part of the German population who, like Wilhelm, felt that they deserved to be on the top of the tree, uh, you know, where currently Britain sat uh, with its giant empire and its great wealth. So, you know, it's a, it's a not dissimilar message, uh, as you say, from Make America Great Again. Uh, it's so interesting, you know, that Trump has been compared to a badly behaved little boy. Sounds, yes. sounds like that describes him, too, you know, having to, you know, be around in his great military uniform and his upturned wax mustache. I can't... Yes, ridiculous mustache. <laughs> we can't show you the pictures on the radio, but it's... It, shame. I mean, it's... <laughs> and Trump's unbelievable haircut it's like what how bizarre is that do they both think it looked good i don't know was was there i'm curious was there a powerful financial elite in germany that backed wilhelm was he about serving them as well like like trump seems to be about serving the financial elite of the u.s it's not exactly the same as um as trump you know you you don't he's not exactly kind of serving the other billionaires in quite the same way but he was certainly very popular with um germany's big financial elite you know there were these massive uh, companies um new companies like krups and and uh, and bosch and uh um that were um you know become had become very very rich and wealthy and made a lot of money for the country over the previous uh, 30, 40 years, there was also a, a big, rich um, landowning elite among whom he very much, with whom he very much identified. And then there was a very sort of powerful group of, of sort of lesser uh, landowners. They were still sort of aristocrats, but they were called Junkers. They were sort right. of gentry. They had smaller estates, so their money came from the land. And they, most of them were in Prussia, which was the sort of center of Germany and where Wilhelm's family originally came from. And they enjoyed all sorts of privileges. So, for example, uh, they got subsidized uh, for, the, for the grain and wheat that they produced while there were tariffs on foreign grain so they could, you know, keep up their lifestyle uh, while money was, you know, corn was expensive for the poor. Um, and they enjoyed all sorts of special privileges, quite sort of feudal privileges. But because they were sort of the background supporters of of uh, Wilhelm um, you know he always looked out for them and the other group sort of 
almost a sort of state within a state that got a lot of support from Wilhelm was the army. Um, Wilhelm sort of fetishized the army terribly. He thought mm. they were fabulous. You know, he wanted to be identified with them. And um, he, you know, he was actually the commander in chief of the German army, even yeah. though the uh, imperial general staff together reckoned that he could, you know, barely lead three soldiers across a gutter. I think that was an actual like quote. But so he, he gave the German army an enormous amount of autonomy. And so they kind of came up, they started to develop all sorts of ideas about sort of paranoia about abroad and about the need to fight a, bat- a war with the rest of Europe, completely sort of unmediated by any other politicians coming in and saying, hang on a minute. And this was very, very much directly kind of Wilhelm you know, giving them a free hand. So there were these very these forces that were definitely supported by Wilhelm that in many respects were quite bad for Germany. Yes, and I, I, certainly within the military, one hears rumors here in the United States about them, a lot of the people in the military thinking, what is this guy doing, you know? But, of course. <laughs> and I, it I'm must, surprised. must have been the case there as well. In case you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're speaking with uh, Miranda Carter about uh, the, t- the title of her essay is uh, What Happens When a Bad-Tempered, Distractable Doofus Runs an Empire? We're not talking about Donald Trump. We're talking about her area of expertise, Kaiser Wilhelm II. It's amazing how similar they were. And certainly Donald Trump takes great pride in calling himself a uniquely successful deal-maker. Of, Wil- yeah. of Wilhelm, you write, one of the many things that Wilhelm was convinced he was brilliant at, despite all evidence to the contrary, was personal diplomacy. Tell us about that, please. How well did he actually do in terms of deal-making? Well, how well do you think he did? I mean, he was a disaster. But like Trump, he was convinced he was a genius. And he often, you know, he thought he was an expert in everything. Um, And the interesting thing about diplomacy at that time was that um, making deals with foreign powers, foreign policy, was seen as the highest form of politics you could do. So, of course, Wilhelm wanted to be good at it. Um, and he also, uh, you know, believed that he could turn back the clock and, you know, make uh, the monarchy all powerful in Germany. Even though, as I've said, there was this, uh, there was a, a well-developed uh, legis- uh, legislative assembly and political parties. And one way he felt he could show how well he would do this was by making deals, sort of man-to-man, of course, because it was usually always a man, um, with other European leaders. So he sort of had a great fantasy that he would sort of walk into the room with Tsar Alexander III, who was, in fact, Nicholas II's um, father and who was still Tsar when uh, Wilhelm came to the throne, and, you know, sort out all the problems between Germany and Russia. Or he'd, you know, have a little chat with Queen Victoria, his grandmother, and everything could be sorted out. Uh Uh, The other thing about Wilhelm was that he was absolutely convinced that he was irresistibly charming and (laughs) persuasive, just like... um, (laughs) Uh, Trump, you know, he thought he was completely gorgeous and how could anybody resist him? Um, But the truth, as we know, was uh, absolutely the opposite, Um, not least because everybody knew that he was talking about them and insulting them behind their backs. Mm. Um, And because he was terribly, terribly tactless and would say the wrong thing. And he had this idea that he could manipulate people without them realizing and everybody could see it coming a mile off. 
Um, so, you know, he would, you know, get into a room with, say, Nicholas II and say something incredibly insulting or, um, you know, rub him up completely the wrong way. He was an absolute disaster. <laughs> but he had this sort of idea that somehow if he was allowed to kind of get into the room with this one other very powerful person, you know, they'd set the world to rights. Uh, I mean, it's very similar to Trump thinking that, you know, he'd have his chat with Kim Jong-un and it would all be absolutely fine. And of course, you know, fantasy. Hasn't quite worked out that way. It, it is amazing. No, it really, really hasn't. We witnessed Trump inexplicably turning on, turning against America's traditional allies, insulting them, of course, as he, at the same time, cozies up to remarkably repressive, anti-democratic, dictatorial adversaries. Uh, he admires, openly admires, Russia's Putin, wants to be like him, China's Xi, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, uh, Hungary's Viktor Orban, who is terribly repressive, and of course, yeah. the Philippines' Duterte, who is a murderous uh, thug. It, yeah, uh, ghastly, uh, ghastly, really not what you want. No, not generally. Well, does his behavior, does, does Trump's behavior, uh, is it reminiscent of Wilhelm with regard to this kind of behavior? Um, well, yes, actually, it really, really is. Um, they both, uh, I mean, Wilhelm, like Trump, had a kind of fascination with the most powerful person in the room. You know, he, he had a real kind of... Mag he, power was sort of magnetic to him, power and wealth. And so when he was a young man, uh, he really wanted to make a good impression uh, on Alexander II, the, the Tsar of Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and he was absolutely obsessed with his grandma, uh, Queen Victoria. Um, he viewed her as the preeminent monarch in the world. And in lots of ways, she was, because Britain had the biggest empire and was the richest country. But he would never, he also refused to understand that actually, in terms of power, she didn't have very much, because mm. Britain was a constitutional monarchy. But she, she, he was sort of completely obsessed with her uh, in terms of her, her, her sort of status. I think it's partly because, you know, as we've already discussed, uh, his sort of idea of what power was was pretty superficial. But it's sort of like, like the fascination for the bully, or maybe the bully's fascination for the bully. Um, you know, it scratches, sort of itches, the, the desire to kind of stand up next to the, the guy who can, you know, knock everybody over and think, I'm like that. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting parallel, I think. And being the grandson of, of Queen Victoria, as you mentioned, as were Tsar Nicholas of Russia and King George of England, all grandsons mm -hmm. of Queen Victoria, Wilhelm had a complicated love-hate relationship with uh, formerly Great Britain. Sorry about that. He loved the luxurious lifestyle of English aristocracy, as you write. We've all seen pictures of Trump's New York residents. Your thoughts yeah. about comparing those? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, uh, you know, he did love, one of the things he loved about Britain was the English aristocracy because they were, they were some of the richest landowners in the world and their lifestyle had become the kind of shorthand for kind of international jet set living. You know, you, you wore a tweed suit and you wanted to go hunting and shooting and, you know, you had a yacht and it, all these sort of things rather came out of the idea of the very, very rich English gentleman which Wilhelm absolutely loved. Um, but, as you said, his relationship with 
with Britain was very, very complicated and with his English relatives. He kind of, he loved them. He admired them and he wanted to be like them. Perhaps he sort of almost wanted to be them. But at the same time, he kind of hated Britain and he's kind of hated his English family because he envied them so much. And um, he really wanted them to kind of give him attention and he never felt he got enough. Um, so it was a deeply, deeply complicated relationship. And you'd find that one minute he'd be saying, all I want in the world is to go and visit dear grandmother and I want a, an alliance with England, with Britain, and, you know, we'll together, we'll be the top dogs in the world. And then the next minute was, no, I'm going to ally with Russia against uh, against Britain. And, you know, I hate Britain and they need to be brought low and shown who's boss and this sort of thing. So, you know, constant seesaw, constant seesaw. And in the end, the desire for sort of destruction really won out. And he he started to build this massive navy, which yes. is an odd thing for Germany because it had hardly any, um, you know, sea coast coast at all. It was really, it had always been a land power, but this was directly in competition with Britain. Oh, sure. It caused an enormous uh, arms race and became the very, one of the terrible sort of blocks and obstacles to Britain and Germany being able to make a, an agreement mm. and hence, you know, forward to World War One. Um, so it was it was it was complicated and it, it it was clearly a very raw subject with with Wilhelm. Uh, I actually see that uh, a great parallel um, of Wilhelm's obsession with England in Trump's obsession with the mainstream media. Uh, he was desperate from the first for its imprimatur. You know, he wanted its approval. You know, all that stuff, all that nonsense about you know having all those. Time magazine front covers, you know, that he thinks this is the most important thing in the world. Um, and then his incredible fury and woundedness every time, you know, the mainstream media says something that criticizes him. You know, he cannot see that they will never give him the approval he wants because he is a creature of the right wing media and Fox and a proven liar. No. So what he does, if he can't have its approval, is he tries to undermine it. Um, and so, you know, you have this, I think, very serious situation where, you know, over years and years, he's gradually sort of whittling away at the idea that there's such a thing as um, objective truth. <laughs> you know, yeah, free press. Saying it's all re re relative, you know, depending on which side you're on, and I'm on the right side. <laughs> um, and I think that's a very sort of similar reaction to Wilhelm's one with England completely or actually basically completely irrational and just predicated on anger and envy and a sort of personal vindictiveness. It is amazing how it seems like not only Trump himself but some people like this 35% solid base for Trump seems to believe if it comes out of his mouth it's true like the size of the inaugural crowd, like, and he just makes stuff up. And yeah. there are a lot of rumors that, and again, there are rumors that, that Trump behind closed doors blows up when he's frustrated and really uh, explodes. Are, are there similarities here as well? I, it, so, it sounds like Wilhelm also expected blind fealty and also played the victim when he didn't get it. Is that accurate? He apps, that's very, very accurate. I mean, again, it's, as I say, you know, the parallels just go, for me, go on and on and on. Um, and what I, uh, what is, 
one of the things that one of the you know those things I I started to read about Trump that made me keep thinking, my goodness, the parallels are more and more and more vivid, was the fact that um, Wilhelm would have these terrible collapses. What would happen is, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but Wilhelm really um, had a sort of, you know, basically he he lived in a kind of fantasy world. What he said was the truth, and he didn't want to hear anything that contra- contradicted him. But what what would happen in reality was every so often, you know, his version of what was happening and what was actually happening, reality would would swing so far far apart that he just couldn't compute it. And you know, there would be some terrible public humiliation or some attempt at kind of bullying a country into doing something he wanted, and it would go awfully wrong, or you know, something like that. And he would have a total emotional collapse. He would. He would have to be sort of scraped off the floor by his entourage and whipped off to one of his many palaces where they'd close the door for a few weeks. And first of all, he'd sort of rage and then he'd cry and then, you know, and he'd say that, you know, he'd never been so terribly and brutally and appallingly treated and never in the history of the world had anybody been so badly abused. And then then he'd get silent for a bit, which didn't happen very often. And then gradually he'd sort of, recalibrate himself and you know he never learned anything from this experience he would just kind of bounce back up eventually and go back to where he had been and this was how he coped um and i think it's what was very interesting was reading michael wolf's fire and fury book the descriptions of trump having these tremendous blow-ups behind closed doors when uh, you know, he didn't get his own way, and he'd sit there in this kind of mire of self-pity, saying, you know, nobody's ever been treated so badly. It's, you know, completely unprecedented. It's so unfair. <laughs> and this terrible sense of sort of rage and collapse. And, um, you know, we hadn't seen this in Trump before before this these sorts of reports. And I thought that was, you know, very interesting. It is indeed. And you point out that, quote, there have been, there have long been questions about Wilhelm's mental health. And yeah, it, it's it sounds like uh, I mean, there's, as you say, unnervingly alike that that there's certainly yeah. a lot of questions about Trump's mental health. Wilhelm and Trump, two bizarre figures, uh, brothers from different mothers, apparently. <laughs> We're speaking with Miranda Carter, who's written a book back in 2010 about George Nicholas and Wilhelm, the uh, three royal cousins. And a recent article, What Happens When a Bad-Tempered, Distractible Doofus Runs an Empire? That's such a good title. It fits both of them so. He reigned from 1888, Wilhelm did, until the end of the First World War. Unbelievable disaster. But it seems to me, and I've read a fair amount about the First World War, it came about by a series of seemingly unrelated decisions, many decisions which turned out to be poor, made by many national leaders, not just German. Of course... In the war, Wilhelm's Germany fought on two fronts, France with the help of England and eventually America on one side and Russia on the other. I understand from your article that before Wilhelm came to power, Germany had a good relationship through a defensive contract with Tsarist Russia. Tell us about Wilhelm's personal role in blowing that partnership and turning a friend into an enemy. Well, uh, it was one of of Wilhelm's early, arguably enormous mistakes. Right. 
there was in 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 Germany at the time a, a deep sort of xenophobia among certain groups, especially these very right wing rich groups. You know, they didn't like the Russians, they didn't like the English, they didn't like the French, and Russia was Germany's great big threatening neighbour on its eastern side. For hundreds of years, Russia had been, you know, its friend, Russia's uh, Germany's friend, and one has to remember that. Germany's a very young country when Wilhelm comes right. to the throne. It was only unified in 1871. Before that, it had been a sort of series of, different, of states which had certain things that sort of bound them together, but they'd all been independent. So they'd been, you know, much, much smaller and obviously okay. looking, you know, up and over at Russia rather frighteningly, but also hoping it would be a friend. And lots of German princesses would marry into the Russian royal family, So, which is one reason why... Um, Wilhelm and the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II, were, were second cousins. But Wilhelm was incredibly, as we said, sort of consumed by the idea of being, um, you know, top dog in Europe and Germany being top dog. And so two years after he comes to the throne in 1890, he allows this very important long-standing defensive alliance with Russia to lapse. It needs to be renewed, and the Russians say, come on, let's do this deal, let's do this deal, let's do this deal. And Wilhelm says, we don't need it, we don't need it. He thinks that actually he can kind of spin it out, and eventually he'll get sort of better terms, um, and he lets it lapse. And this is against the advice of the great chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck, who he inherited from his father and grandfather, who had been the person, the great architect of Germany. And Wilhelm cannot bear Bismarck being there because he's a com- competition with his, obviously with his power, but also he's a constant reproof of, you know, Wilhelm's uselessness and Bismarck's wiliness. So he sacks him and he lets this insurance treaty lapse. And what happens? The Russians don't sit there going, oh no, what should we do? They immediately make a defensive alliance with Germany's other neighbor on its other side, France. This is particularly um, amazing because France is a republic, you know, famously right. the great democratic republic with no king or queen right. in uh, in Europe. And Russia is this incredibly autocratic state. But they're both so uncomfortable having Germany in the middle that they make this alliance. And the alliance sticks from 1890 oh, yeah. all the way through to the beginning of the First World War, even though Wilhelm spends the next 25 years trying to break it and trying to win over the the Russians. But this sort of massive initial mistake just kind of sets the stage for all the rubbish that comes afterwards. Um, You know, he thought, I think Wilhelm firstly thought that he would manage to charm the Zars. You know, he was so convinced of his own charm that, you know, it was all going to be fine. And also he somehow, he thought somehow that, you know, the Russians just needed them too much. And he overestimated both. So, big, big mistake. Big mistake. And as you, you know, you can immediately imagine, think of uh, a dozen, well, not a dozen, but three or four comparisons with that, with Trump. It, 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 I mean, if you think about the First World War, how really unnecessary it, I mean, it, it, anyway, millions of people, millions of people died and lost yeah. limbs and went crazy. And it was just because stupid, stupid decisions on the part of so many different uh, countries. Another interesting personality quirk uh, is about insults. When Obama poked fun, I don't know if, uh, Miranda, you've seen the video of, uh, it was a uh, National Press Club, I believe, dinner in 2015 when President Obama poked fun of of Trump in the audience. That sense of insult, 
I think, has driven Trump ever since. He's wanted to destroy everything Obama had anything to do with. Your, your thoughts on Trump's fixation on destroying every part of Obama's legacy, no matter what the cost to anyone else. How does this yeah. remind you of Wilhelm's obsession with an envy of England, for example? Well, uh, you know, I think they're both uh, very, you know, they both take everything per- they both take everything personally. I mean, that's an understatement, really. I mean, so the problem is they can't depersonalize themselves from any politics. They both think it's all about them. And so, you know, a joke from Obama, Trump decides is, you know, is is deliberately, you know, getting at him and he's going to have his revenge. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the political consequences are. Um, you know, he's going to go after him. And Wilhelm was not dissimilar. Uh, Wilhelm, uh, Wilhelm's great kind of envy figure was his uncle, Edward VII, um, uh, who was the son, the oldest son of, of Queen Victoria. And Wilhelm was incredibly envious of of uh, Edward, rather similar uh, to Trump being sort of envious of Obama. um, Edward was incredibly charming, incredibly popular. He was widely seen as the great sort of relaxed, charming playboy of Europe. As he got older, he he sort of won this slightly unwarranted, but nevertheless um, much touted uh, reputation for being a kind of good personal diplomat, the sort of reputation that Wilhelm would have loved. Uh-huh. And what happened was Wilhelm had a desperate desire to constantly undermine him. When he was a prince, he actually, before he was king, he actually wrote um, secretly to the Russian emperor, Alexander III, telling him that um, Uncle Bertie, as he called Edward VII, mm-hmm. was actually secretly plotting to, to um, undermine Russian rule um, and uh, was planning to send an army from India into Russia. I mean, it's a complete nonsense and fantasy, but, you know, that's a pretty extraordinary thing to do for one near head of state to another, just to try and, you know, try and basically destroy somebody else. Mm. Uh, very dangerous stuff. Um, and later on, he would take every opportunity he could to sort of try and humiliate or embarrass his his uncle. And then uh, later on, still, every time he was sort of frustrated, you know, he didn't get what he wanted in some grand sort of European political decision, he would blame his uncle. You know, he'd have a kind of tantrum about it on the floor. And I think you can see something similar in the way that Trump goes after Obama. Tantrums, indeed. <laughs> And, and, you know, some leaders actually work on policy, think about what might work and be good for the people I was elected to serve. Yeah, well, yeah. that's not this guy, Trump or Wilhelm. You, you know, as we said earlier, they, they, Wilhelm considered himself irresistible. What about the role yeah. of flattery for both men? Flattery. Oh, well, um, yes, <laughs> flattery. Uh, Wilhelm thought he was very, very good at it. But the rather more significant thing about it uh, was that uh, he loved it. He thrived off it. He wanted it all the time, just like Trump. Um, I think that's the most sort of significant thing. Oh, what can I say about him? He he was incredibly susceptible to it. And he he never wanted to hear any criticism. I mean, it was he, he couldn't really bear to hear any criticism of himself. So he ended up surrounding himself with inveterate flatterers and people who would say yes to him. You know, his most famous chancellor, Bernard von Bülow, uh, basically his rise to his position, eventual position of, of chancellor of Germany came about because of his unbelievable sycophancy 
you know, he just went on and on and on praising the Kaiser and saying how marvelous he was. There's all these quotes of him saying, you know, the All Highest is the most incredible human being who ever lived. You know, he lifts me up on eagle's wings to do better because, you know, he is so marvelous and super and fantastic. I mean, it's, it's absurd. But Wilhelm absolutely drank this stuff up. Um, and his closest male friend, Wilhelm's closest male friend, Philip Zu Eulenberg, would always say that in order to persuade Wilhelm to do something, you had first to persuade him uh, that he'd thought of it. Sure. Which is something, in fact, Michael Wolff exactly says that thing, that thing about, about Trump in Fire and Fury, that, you know, AIDS started realizing that if they were going to get him to do anything, they had to persuade him that it was his idea in the first. Eulenberg also said that, you know, once you persuaded him, to, that it was his idea, then you had to add the sugar. So, you know, lots and lots of kind of, pro, you know, ruffling the feathers and flattery. Um, and, of course, the very dangerous, dangerous thing about this is you end up being sur- surrounded by yes-men, people who will, who will say yes to you and tell you what you want to hear. So, of course, you know, you don't hear what's really going on. But also you end up being uh, prey to the manipulations of people who are willing to say anything to you so they can get on... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and do what they want. It's a, it's a dangerous thing. And I'm reminded there was a cabinet meeting oh, a year or so ago where people went around the table and just flattered Mr. Trump, every single one. And those that haven't, he has no problem with sacking his ministers, as you say. I mean, if they... If no, they... absolutely. But, uh, of course, the, the thing about flattery with, with, with Wilhelm and as we've learned very over the last couple of years with Trump, is it doesn't really work because you know while he longs to hear it and he wants to suck it up and have it all the time, the fact is he's so changeable. You know he changes his moment, our mind at any moment that it has no lasting value. So you know you can tell Trump he's the most fa- all Wilhelm they're the most <laughs> fabulous people in the world, but it ain't going to keep you you know secure because he can just you know he'll forget it two minutes time. So, you know, take note, I always think, you know, the flattery doesn't really work either. Amazing. Eventually, you know, as we've seen, those those, those uh, Trump uh, aides going through those revolving doors with such oh, yeah. incredible speed. Flattery, it, gets, it doesn't work for very long. And it's, uh, it, no. But, but he seems rather shallow, I must say. And I, I once had the honor in 1984 of carrying candidate for President George McGovern's luggage out in Iowa. And one bag was incredibly heavy. I couldn't believe it. I asked him what it was. He said it was all books. (laughs) What about reading for Donald Trump and Wilhelm? Well, um, (laughs) you know, as there's that fantastic quote that I think several people have made, that Trump is basically functionally illiterate, that he can't read half a page of writing and not get bored. You know, he simply can't read anything uh, or attach it. You know, I mean, that's extraordinary for a president, of my, you know, as we all know and think. Um, Wilhelm was very similar. I mean, he liked to think of himself as a cultured man, um, and he liked to pontificate about music and art. You know, famously, he, he had terrible, terrible taste. Um but, you know, he too could barely, he couldn't finish a newspaper. You know, people would, his ministers would write shorter and shorter and shorter reports, you know, trying to kind of boil mm-hmm. everything down because they knew they couldn't keep his attention for longer than 10 minutes. Um, so what happened instead is his aides would take newspaper cuttings. They'd go through the European newspapers 
and they'd cut out all the articles about him. Uh, and that's all he wanted to read. So he'd read all the articles about him um, and what the world was saying about him, just like Trump and his three TVs. And a great way of manipulating Wilhelm was to, you know, if you wanted him to be pro-English or anti-English or pro-Russian one day or another, was to sort of slip in an article in which, you know, some English newspaper said something rude about him or some Russian newspaper said something flattering. And, then, you know, suddenly it would be, oh, we want, we want um, you know, we want to break all our, all our good, uh, you know, relations with England and we want an alliance with uh, Russia, but of course, you know that could easily change the following week. Very flighty, it seems, and certainly flighty is the word. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's sort of these words just keep coming up, you know, from hearing more about both of them. It, we've yeah. had we've long had a two-party system here in America. With yeah. when one party has the head of state and government, the other is the loyal opposition, and we were all yeah. considered good participating citizens and patriots. Both parties, Republicans and Democrats, the loyal opposition, you know, is competition. How does Trump and Wilhelm compare on attitudes toward the other party? It seems like uh, they were a little bit out of the norm. Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Wilhelm came from somewhere very different from, from a very different tradition from, from Trump. Yeah. You know, his, his family had ruled Prussia for generations, and his grandfather, who was the first emperor of Germany, wanted to kind of bring back to life the very antiquated idea of the divine right of kings, i.e. that if you were the king, you were king because you know God had made you king, and so everybody else really ought to put up and shut up. You know, of course, you were, you were ruling for their benefit, but, you know, you got to do what you wanted without any annoying um, elective assembly interfering. Uh, and, and Wilhelm very much liked that idea. That was what he wanted. Um, in a similar way, um, Trump is, of course, out of a completely different tradition. But it, every time you look, it's as if he's trying to show that he is not, uh, you know, he doesn't have to listen to the Justice Department or uh, or Congress, whether Senate or or the House of Representatives. He doesn't feel that he needs that he should have any caps on his power at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I think this probably says more about their personalities in a way than it does about about their, uh, you know, where they came from. Uh, I mean, what is very striking is that while Wilhelm tried to sort of reinvent or sort of bring back to life this idea of sort of divine right, um, and, you know, he was forever saying awful things about socialists and, you know, social democrats and anybody uh, who he politically disagreed with. Um, it was a very, even then, it was regarded as a really antiquated idea, you know. I mean, it's quite interesting that uh, the one royal family that ended up lasting, really, one of the few after World War One, the British royal family, very explicitly decided that it had to, after World War One, appeal directly to the British people uh -huh. and to sort of present itself as a monarchy that served the people um, and and uh, rather than the people serving serving them because they knew they they wouldn't last otherwise but both i mean i think as i say personality wise wilhelm and trump have this sort of incredible desire to you know they feel that it's their right to kind of behave like a kind of autocrat wilhelm was not elected by the people he was he was uh, inherited it i believe and yes. but 
Trump was, in theory, elected to serve the country. He seems to have this attitude that, no, the country is there to serve him. I mean, his, I still think that his violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution will be what drives him from office because he sees nothing wrong with profiting from being president, personally profiting in terms of actual dollars. But yes. I, did, did Wilhelm, this may be very different between the two, did he have an understanding that he was somehow there to serve his country, or did he think the country was there to serve him? I think he felt, uh, I mean, he would have said that he was serving the country, right. but actually well, like he Trump. really thought, you know, that he was in charge and everybody ought to shut up. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's what he thought. Oh, right. um, I don't think, you know, it's a different period, and sure. Wilhelm would have thought, you know, the idea, I mean, Wilhelm never troubled himself with, you know, how much things cost, you know, or, or making money. He would have thought that was sort of slightly dirty. Um, but he certainly assumed that, you know, he should be wealthy and that everybody should do what he said. Right. Well, that, there's certainly a similarity there. Eventually, yeah. as you write, uh, Wilhelm made the country a laughingstock, and there were calls for his abdication. Yeah. I, I do hear echoes on that. How did, how did Wilhelm deal with calls for his abdication? <laughs> well, uh, not well. I mean, he hated being laughed at and humiliated. But as we've said, as I've described, you know, when things got really bad, when he had one of these terrible, terrible uh, humiliations, there's this, this moment in 1908 where there's a whole series of terrible gaffes he makes. He um, gives an interview to uh, the English Daily Telegraph newspaper saying, I mean, it makes him sound mad. He says things like, You're, you know, you English are mad, mad as March hares. You know, I'm your greatest ally, but the rest of Germany absolutely hates you. You know, politicians, people, Americans all over the country are absolutely furious because he looks stupid. Um, but also it looks like he's cozying up to England. And then, um, and then it turns out he's given a, a simultaneous unpublished interview to a journalist in America in which he said, um, you know, Britain is rotten to the core and Germany is just waiting to take it out. So, of course, immediately the British are furious. Um, and then there's a sort of terrible law, court, law case that's been rumbling along for years about his best friend uh, who's been accused of being homosexual, which was illegal at the time, and that comes to a sort of terrible, terrible end, and it's all very embarrassing. So, you know, and he has this absolutely enormous breakdown. He has, It's so bad, his son, the Prince Regent, has to sort of take over for a bit. Mm. And when he comes back, actually, he was never quite as assertive again. He's, you know, at this point, he starts sort of withdrawing. I mean, he kind of interferes from time to time, but he really starts leaving and very sort of dangerous policies in the hands of, of civic offence and very right-wing people um, who, uh, you know, who start taking Germany, I think, closer and closer towards war. Most unfortunate. Another disturbing similarity. Years ago, Trump considered himself a Democrat, but he's yeah. always just been Trump, Trump, Trump. He's all just about himself. You write that after that personal collapse that Wilhelm would bounce back up and still postured and speechified, but he increasingly left all the real decisions to his now ultra-conservative ministers. Well, that yeah. reminds me of Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, who is clearly a, you know, like drooling warmonger for this. And I, I well, want Yeah, and also he's proved to be incredibly good at managing Trump in a way that... Yes. You know, some other people haven't. You know, there he is all the time. Mm. I mean, I don't know. You may find next week he's been sacked. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, and he, I mean, uh, don't you think sort of a couple of years ago, the idea of him having that job 
almost unthinkable. Unthinkable. I mean, uh, the, the, yeah. He uh, just loves war, but it, it does seem similar that they, they have no program or you know, beliefs, or, uh, idea of building real national security, so they both go to ultra-conservative ministers. Uh, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, but you know, I think I think the the big the bigger picture actually, you know, we have to ask ourselves why Wilhelm and Trump seem so unnervingly alike. And I think that uh, you know the the thing that binds them actually is is that they both exhibit the same mental disturbance, and that is. I mean, I have to say before I I say this that I have. No expertise at all in diagnosing mental behaviour at all. But it does seem to me that both men really do exhibit all the characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder. I mean, you know, you just have to reel them off. And I, you know, as as you all know, this subject keeps coming back. Only recently after the tweet by Kellyanne Conway's husband, I saw that, you know, lots of people were talking about, you know, in America again about whether Trump had narcissistic personality disorder i've got to say you know i think he ticks all the boxes i think both of them oh yes if you just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're speaking with our friend miranda carter uh over in london about uh the amazing similarities between trump and uh kaiser wilhelm ii of germany her article is what happens when a bad-tempered distractible doofus runs an empire well how did wilhelm's reign finally end well, you know, he. Uh, what happened was in uh, when the war broke out uh, in 1914, he was very, very quickly sort of swept aside as completely irrelevant. And he doesn't make any military or political decisions. Basically, all he does for four years is sort of shake people's hands and pin medals on. And he is, in fact, in Germany called the Shadow Kaiser because he's become such a sort of pathetic, irrelevant figure. And he ended up abdicating on the day of the armistice, the 11th of November. Uh-huh. This was dis- demanded by the Allies and Woodrow Wilson, who was obviously president of America at the time, and uh, also by uh, the German Reichstag. They said, you know, mm-hmm. you've got to go. So there's a lot of indecision, and he kind of havers. And then he signs it and immediately jumps, terrified that he's, something horrible is going to happen to him. Because, of course, you know, for all the um, stomping around and macho, posturing. He was actually a tremendous coward. Mm-hmm. Uh, he jumps into a car and drives for the uh, Dutch border, and he crosses over in his in his Bentley. And there he stayed for 22 more years. He lived in, in Holland, uh, and he never moved from Holland, which is extraordinary for a man who had a sort of compulsion to move around all the time. You know, he never stayed still, I think partly because being him was so uncomfortable, he had to kind of move from town to town and kind of try and sort of start again all the time in order to get rid of the uncomfortable feelings. But mm. there he was for 22 years, complaining about all the terrible things that had been done to him and how nobody had ever been so wounded. You know, incidentally, he got something like 36 uh, lorry loads, you know, um, train um, uh, loads of, of sort of gold and money and goodness knows what else. So he was very happily, uh, you know, he was perfectly oh. well provided for. But my goodness, he did love to complain. Poor victim. Well, after the horrors of the Great War, Germany briefly became a republic with many parties. Then, of course, arose Hitler, who was recently described by London-based journalist Tom Phillips as actually an incompetent, lazy egomaniac, and his government was an absolute clown show. We're talking about Hitler now, a work-shy narcissist who didn't get out of bed till 11 a.m., obsessed with media and celebrity, 
Many of the worst man-made events that ever occurred were not the product of evil geniuses, he said. Instead, they were a product of a parade of idiots and lunatics incoherently flailing their way through events, helped along by an overconfident people who thought they could control them. End of quote. Americans and people around the world dearly hope America comes to its senses after Trump. Now, reading Phillips' comments, I do wonder what door Trump has opened. I mean, because obviously there were some amazing similarities between Wilhelm and uh, Adolf Hitler. Your thoughts on that? Well, I wouldn't say amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on Hitler, I have to say. I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily sure, say sure. amazing um, similarities. But I do think uh, it's worth noting that when I was writing my book about Wilhelm and his cousins, uh, George W. Bush was president. And I was very struck at the time by, you know, A, the amount of time he spent on a golf course, and B, how a, you know, bad, lazy president like a rubbish emperor, could have such an incredibly disastrous effect on the world. You know, I, I think that is exhibited over and over again. You know, individuals can have yes. incredibly harmful effects on, on the whole world. Mm. Um, and in terms, but in terms of, of, of Trump having, you know, having an effect on American, American life after he goes, you know, I fear that that is the case. Uh, and that actually, you know, what, what um, one has to be very wary of is is how his legacy will continue after he goes. The thing, the most dangerous thing I feel in some ways that Trump has done is to normalize all kinds of behavior um, as president, which would have been unthinkable before him. I think I heard Senator Raskin talking about this last week. I thought he was absolutely right. And He's creating, making things seem okay that just really yes. aren't and that yeah. really didn't exist before he became president. And in particular, the idea that truth is unimportant, that it's only relative, that it's okay to be dishonest, that it's okay to obstruct justice, that it's okay to make money when you're in office. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of fake news, you know, it's such a dangerous idea. And the other very dangerous feeling I have is, is, is the idea of dividedness, that actually this is a good thing. Of course, it exists. Yes. You know, American society was pretty well, divided. supposed to be time, divided, but yeah. But it sort of resonated with this and, and emphasized this idea that perhaps the things that unite us aren't so important, that actually all exchanges and negotiations are about zero-sum games, that you either win or lose. Hmm. And I think this is a very unhelpful idea. You know, what, we, what's, what saves us are the things that unite us. Well, let's hope so. Well, if people are interested in reading more, uh, Miranda Carter wrote back in 2010, George, Nicholas, and Wilhelm, a biography of the three royal cousins. Thank you so much for being with us today. Very much appreciated. Very interesting. Educational. Thank you. Das bloße Haschen nach dem Wind, wer weiß es schon genau. Die Uhr an deine Wand, sie ist gefüllt mit Sand. Leg deine Hand in mein und lass uns ewig sein. Du trösten deine Wand. Und wirst uns bestimmt 